When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Fred Hayes, Apollo 13 uh, Lunar Module Pilot. I'm just happy to do a little chatting about uh, those uh, exciting days uh, back on the mission, now approaching some 50 years. And you're listening to the Dr. Sky Show. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the exciting show that you tell us you like so much, The Dr. Sky Show, with great guests from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather with celebrity guests in the mix. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention our flowing and glowing producer of the radio show, Richard Dugan of radio station KZSB, that's AM 1290 in Santa Barbara, California. And first, a shout-out from our flagship radio station, KTAR 92.3 FM, the news talk here in the desert southwest, and to all the stations around the nation who've been listening for 10 years. Thank you for your dedication. Today, ladies and gentlemen, an exceptional interview. In just a few moments, we'll be speaking with one of the crew members of Apollo 13. Yes, indeed, you may have seen the movie starring Tom Hanks and so many other celebrities. But here today, ladies and gentlemen, is Fred Hayes. He was a lunar module pilot on Apollo 13. And a brief bio of Fred Hayes is in order. Fred Hayes is an American former NASA astronaut, fighter pilot with the U.S. Marine Corps and the U.S. Air Force and test pilot included. He is one of only 24 people who have flown to the moon, having flown as the lunar module pilot on Apollo 13. He was to have been the sixth person to land and walk on the moon, but the Apollo 13 mission was aborted before lunar landing. He then went on to fly space shuttle approach and landing tests in 1977 and retired from NASA in 1979. Apollo 13 was the seventh manned mission in the Apollo space program and the third intended to land on the moon. The craft, the Apollo Saturn V, was launched back on April the 11th, 1970, from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. But the lunar landing was aborted after an oxygen tank exploded two days later, crippling the service module upon which the command module had depended. Despite great hardship caused by limited power, loss of cabin heat, storage of potable water, and the critical need to make makeshift repairs to the carbon dioxide removal system, the crew returned safely to Earth on April the 17th, 1970, six days after launch. And speaking to us from his home in Texas is none other than Fred Hayes. Ladies and gentlemen, one of only 24 people who've gone to the moon, and one of the humans who's actually gone farthest from the Earth. Fred Hayes, welcome to the show. Yes, sir. Glad to join you here today from hot, sunny uh, Houston. <laughs> yes, sir. And I'm here in hot and equally sunny Phoenix, Arizona, where the temperatures yesterday, Fred, got up to at least 116 degrees. But the most important part of that is that'll all be over, hopefully soon. Fred, I met you briefly and shook your hand down at Space Fest, and it was a high honor to stand there and just be with you. And I wanted you to start off from the beginning, of course, because it's not an easy path to becoming an astronaut. Describe your early experience and how you got into the astronaut corps, and then, of course, moved all the way up the pecking order, as we would say, to be on board Apollo 13. Well, I guess the start for me was when I got in aviation and 
joined the military during the Korean War and became a naval aviator, served in two Marine fighter squadrons. Uh, along the way, I did not see combat in Korea. It ended about four months before I finished flight training. But anyway, I, I then uh, subsequently got interested in thinking about being a test pilot, went back to school to get an engineering degree, and uh, joined NASA, actually just barely after it became NASA in 1959 at the Lewis Research Center in Cleveland, now named Glenn after John Glenn. Yes, sir. And I actually was two, about two and a half years behind Neil Armstrong. Neil also was a NASA pilot, a research pilot. Uh, started at Lewis, where I did, uh, but had already moved on to Edwards Air Force Base, and he got a chance to fly the X-15 rocket ship. Uh, he was ahead of me there. And uh, then went into the astronaut program, and I just followed his trail because uh, after uh, three years at Lewis, I moved to Edwards uh, right after Neil had again left a couple of years to go earlier to go in the astronaut program. And so I was on that trail, and actually, when I talked to Neil uh, uh, when he was already in the astronaut program, I really had to think hard about signing up uh, or, because our applying. Because what he told me was being an astronaut involved being in a lot, a lot of meetings and a lot of simulation time and not much really good flying, as we had done with NASA and various uh, test programs. Sure. So I had to think hard about giving up uh, that because I actually still the best fun time of my life flying was my time at Edwards Air Force Base at the uh, Flight Research Center, which incidentally today is named after Neil. It's Armstrong. Flight Research Center. It's a great place, sir. And We've been there, and it's an amazing story because we talked to so many pilots like yourself, sir, and obviously this, you want to be in the cockpit, not flying a desk, and I think that kind of summarizes the, the point, right? Right, yeah, and, but you know, I realized uh, sitting there thinking a little more that if, uh, I was intrigued with the lunar mission, and I said, well, if I stay at Edwards, that it, that's not going to get me to the moon, so that's when I uh, applied. Absolutely wonderful. Fred Hayes, ladies and gentlemen, astronaut on board Apollo 13, a most famous, as many of the Apollo missions, of course, all equally important. But this particular story, if you ask the average person on the street, they probably have a little more recollection of Apollo 13. Fred Hayes joins us from his home in southern Texas here on the Dr. Sky Show. He, of course, is one of 19 new astronauts selected for NASA's Astronaut Group 5 back in 1966. But then talk about the mixes they have it, where they made up the crews, and obviously some changes were made, and uh, there you go. You guys are ready to launch a most interesting rocket. I mean, we've talked about this with so many of the space scientists, but I want to hear it from yourself, Fred. When they put you inside there, great uh, people like Gunther Vent, I guess he was one of the pad leaders that put so many of the astronauts back into the space capsules. When you're standing on that gangplank and moving into the capsule, describe from there and the launch sequence, what's it like? What does it feel like to have that big, those big five F1 engines pushing you towards space? I got to hear that. Well, it, you know, it's like anything. You approach it. Uh, in sports, a big game. Uh, we'd worked long and hard to get there. There was there was a little taken away uh, as we as we headed out because we had changed the crewman. Uh, Jack Schweigert replaced the Ken Manningly because uh, we'd all been exposed to measles. And Ken was felt to be uh, very susceptible to come down with measles. 
which incidentally, he never. I think Ken's one year younger than me, so he's 83, and I don't think he's ever had measles. Yes, but anyway, the, the replacement was made with Jack, so it was kind of mo- emotionally uh, uh, a little hard changing out a crewman that late in the game. Although the movie uh, gave a wrong inflection that there was some concern about Jack's uh, technical capability to fill in, and that was not the case. We trained equally as prime and backup, and I backed up uh, 8 and 11, and I'm sure I could have done the job if I had been replaced the counterpart I was backing up without any problem. So, but at any rate, uh, you're excited uh, because this is now you've done all this work and training, and you're going to finally get to go. Uh, as far as what you feel in the in the rocket, uh, there's yes. a, <clears throat> certain steps during the uh, launch uh, preparation sequence, and that they gimbal the engines, and that kind of puts a motion rumble up the stack. Uh, but uh, you you can't hear anything as far as people, you know the, the engines obviously uh, sure. are heard from the, the roar and the pressure even from the sound waves. But the visitors five miles away, viewers they feel that. But we inside you don't hear any of that sound because it's uh, well below you, and you're you're moving up. Uh, the ride itself uh, uh, uphill the most unusual couple of unusual aspects of it from flying all my airplane experience with fighter airplanes and otherwise yes, sir. Uh, is the sort of herky-jerkiness of the ride. The uh, the large four out of engines, when they gimbal, uh, even, I guess, moving very s- small, uh, that gives a lot of motion, and it's exaggerated because we're sitting in a capsule way up on the tippy top. And uh, so you get a lot of particularly sideways motion that you normally would never feel in an airplane. And the G-levels, though, are modest compared to the fighter airplanes. Plus, we were laying laying on our backs on a couch, which is a better position to take G's rather than the fighter airplane where you're sitting upright in an ejection seat. And even the old fighters I flew, uh, we'd pull six, seven G's in combat maneuvering. And, of course, the maximum G on an Apollo launch was four and a half. So that part wasn't uh, that big a deal. Uh, The other most pronounced uh, thing was when the first stage shut down, which Mm -hmm. it does, obviously, very abruptly, and you tend to get thrown in an instrument panel because you go instantly from four and a half Gs to no Gs. Wow. And uh, during that transition, it's... uh, that's that's kind of another abrupt sequence that takes place in the launch, but that's that's about it. Other than that, it it smoothed out even beyond that with the uh, liquid engines as we run on uphill. That's incredible. So you feel like a little kick in the pants, to so, so to speak. It's like when that first stage just shuts down, you feel a different. You feel a pretty big jolt. Then is that what you're trying to say? Right, a big jolt. Uh, yeah, most people think of it that when you lift off the pad as a jolt in the pants, but it's not. It's a lift. Mm-hmm. It uh, it moves away. It just the pictures you've seen almost look like slow motion. Uh, it uh, it's so heavy. It's over six million pounds that even little, those big engines, it's, mm-hmm. it moves away quite slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in fact, I've talked to people that have ridden the Russian Suyov, which is also a liquid system, and they say almost yes. without without seeing the clock starting, uh, they don't even know they lift it off. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That's incredible. Ladies and gentlemen, you're joined uh, here in the Dr. Sky Show by one of the famous astronauts here of all time, not because of the mission, but his dedication, like all the astronauts. First of all, sir, I want to thank you for your service to the United States military, as, of course, all the great folks we have on this show. That's part and parcel. I think the most important thing to say to any of the veterans. So thank you for your service to the United States of America. But in that very rare group of people, 24 people, as we've described, sir, you know that better than anyone, have gone to the moon. My interest in this is to talk with you about something interesting. When I was a young boy, my parents took me down to see an eclipse of the sun, which was March the 7th of 1970. And right there, as we got to the Kennedy Space Center, right there in the Canaveral area, we saw, and I saw this, I have a little picture still, and I keep it on my desk in the little Kodachrome of the Apollo 13 stack just sitting there. And I was amazed as a young boy. But describe it, sir, because we never could stay for the launch, which would have been, what, a month later. I'm amazed because 365 feet tall, if I'm correct, that's bigger than some buildings. And it's just an f- amazing feat how they created the Saturn V moon rocket. No, it's, uh, I, de- I described it so people can maybe better understand that uh, mm-hmm. size. Is I tell them if you lay it horizontally, which is now it is displayed that way at Johnson Space Center, at uh, Marshall, and uh, the, the uh, the Space and Rocket Center there yes. in Huntsville, Alabama, and at Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Uh, it would cover the entire football field, plus both end zones, wow. and then have about three foot hanging out. Totally. So that's uh, that's the size of that uh, that rocket. And so many people, as you know better, are trying to create the bigger thrust. I mean, Elon Musk and the Falcon Heavies and some other many people around the world are trying to build, including NASA. But that's, sir, an amazing part of uh, history, and we salute the people who built that rocket and the people like yourself on this radio show. Let's talk about the moon mission itself. I'm fascinated by this because, obviously, many people out there are interested to hear your story, sir. As you get into the lunar transition injection, you're moving, of course, toward the moon. Here's what happens, and I don't know, Fred, I can say it in my simple way. Around 205,000 miles from Earth, the event that you're going to describe just happened. And just so you know, Fred, on my little Honda Element, it just turned 205,000 miles, and it took me 10 years to do it. But describe <laughs> the journey to the moon, because that's the best way an earthling like me can describe it. It took me a hell of a lot of years, Fred, over a decade to get to 205,000 miles. But describe it in a serious way. You're moving on to lunar injection. The, the rocket's moving toward the, the moon. And what's that like? And then all of a sudden, around 205,000 miles, take up and pick up the story from there, because this is the historic part. Well, your, tri- your trip outbound uh, is pretty relaxed. Uh, you do some uh, platform alignments. We had some photos uh, to take at different times, at different distances uh, of the Earth as we um, moved away. It was kind of one, maybe what we call it one of the... Uh, design objectives, mm-hmm. and uh, you do housekeeping kind of things. And and one thing you do is as a, a rata sheets, you actually <laughs> are still taking out some of the checklist and the handwriting in changes that were made. It was too late to do a reprint of the book, so you're you're modifying them that way with a, a rata sheet. 
Uh, and that particular day that this happened, the second day out, Tim uh, mm-hmm. Lovell and I had been scheduled and did uh, accomplish a TV show uh, near the end of the workday. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did it sort of as a show and tell, uh, pulling out elements and objects in the lunar module that we knew from looking at previous missions, TV shows never had been talked about, and we figured that might be interesting for the general public. You bet. And after the, the plan was, after we finished that uh, show, we were fixing to go to bed. Uh, that was the end of the workday. Mm-hmm. And the next morning, the plan was to wake up and go and prepare and go into lunar orbit. And uh, subsequently, power getting Jim and I would get in the limb and power it up and prepare for the landing. Yes. Uh, the explosion happened uh, just after we completed that TV show. Wow. Uh, Jack was alone in the command module at the time. Jim and I were in the limb, and uh, it was a, it was obviously a, a loud bang reverberating through the metal structure. Uh, both both vehicles are metal. Yes, sir. The, uh, the there was some vehicle motion, though not very much. But uh, thrusters, the little hundred pound attitude thrusters, were firing. Uh, which you know were un- was unusual, and Jim had already started then to drift up through the tunnel to go back to the command module. By that time, Jack had made the call, the first call of Houston. We've had a problem. Houston had not answered, and so Jim repeated the call. And then subsequently, I started up to uh, get to uh, my position, which was in the right couch. Uh, in front of me, I had the. Uh, electrical system stuff, the environmental, and communications. Yes, sir. And uh, within a well, less than a minute uh, scan, it was obvious from the readings in several meters uh, that we had lost oxygen tank two. Okay, Houston, uh, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. We've had a main B bus undervolt. Roger, main B undervolt. Okay, stand by, 13, we're looking at it. Okay, uh, right now, uh, Houston, the uh, voltage is uh, looking good. Uh, and we had a pretty large bang associated with the uh, caution and warning there. And as I recall, main B was the one that uh, had a amp spike on it uh, once before. In the interim here, uh, we're starting to uh, go ahead and button up the tunnel again. Yeah, that, that jolt uh, must have rocked uh, uh, the sensor uh, on, uh, see now, an O2 uh, quantity 2. It uh, was oscillating uh, down around 20 to 60 percent. Now it's full scale high again. And uh, Houston, we had a restart on our computer. We had a pink light and, uh, and a restart reset. Roger, restart. And our pink light. Restart on the bank. Okay. Reset. And, and, uh, and I'm looking at the rest. Service module RCS uh, helium 1. We have uh, B is barber pole. And D is barber pole. Helium 2. B is barber pole. And uh, secondary propellant. So I have uh, A and uh, B barber pole. T-Mac temperatures. Okay, AC2 is showing zip up. I'm trying to reconfigure on that, Jack. Yeah, we got a uh, main bus A undervolt now, too, Sean. Main A undervolt. It's reading about 25 and a half. Main B's reading zip right now. Stand by one, Jim. That's amazing, Fred, what we've just heard. And, and I just want you to continue on your story because from my perspective, of course, the limited knowledge I've had of this throughout history, and then, of course, watching Tom Hanks' rendition of Apollo 13, 
I see this amazing explosion take place on the command module. And I mean, that's just so unnerving because you and, of course, the other crewmates were prepared to continue on the two to the surface of the moon, you and Jim Lovell, to the Fram Moro region on the moon. And well, your mind goes from not just thinking about the lunar landing. Now it transitions into what it's, it's kind of a survival mode thing. But how, how bad was this, if you can describe it? Because I don't want to be dramatic here. I want to hear it from yourself. I mean, how close to this particular point was this, like, fatal maybe to you guys if you didn't have the lunar module attached? That was the lifeboat, right? Well, the, the way the situation is described uh, was right at, after the explosion was we lost tank two. Uh, we thought we still had tank one, the other oxygen tank, yes. which really uh, meant we were, we were not in a life-threatening situation. Good. But uh, that tank uh, obviously then showed and developed, had developed somehow a very slow leak. Ooh. It was not apparent immediately. In fact, the mission control, uh, with all the array of warning lights we had on, <clears throat> quite a few, about seven of them, Mm-hmm. And a uh, computer restart, blue light, and a master alarm. For 18 minutes, Houston thought it was an instrumentation problem and not a real sure. problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, but as the oxygen tank uh, two uh, number one showed that it had a leak, that's when it became to become a real a real problem, a real serious problem. Uh, we we did went through extensive period of troubleshooting. With the mission control diagnosed in different ways, uh, we might be able to isolate the leak to that uh, tank one. Yes. Uh, and that went on for uh, an hour. And uh, so it was about that time that Jim asked me to, when it, it was pretty obvious they were running out of ideas, to start powering up the lunar module, which, uh, is, as happenstance, uh, we still had a... Uh, fully intact, uh, ready vehicle to land on the moon that now could serve uh, to provide his life support and communications and really buy time Mm -hmm. to uh, work work this uh, major issue to try to get his home. So that's what Jim and I got very active in, left Jack alone in the command module to go. He continued working with mission control and eventually shut that vehicle completely down. Well, Fred, you know, I have a problem personally when I go into tight spaces. I think they call it claustrophobia, but I don't know if that's exactly what I have, and a lot of people are like this. But describe the environment of both the command module, the Apollo capsule itself, your living environment, and that of the lunar module. It's it's fairly spacious, according to like when we had Jim Lovell on here, but you're another person who experienced it. I mean, you're in you're in some tiny, kind of tight quarters. Is that is that a fair assessment? Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. Uh, well, yeah, tight, but yes, but it's very comfortable. It's what you've spent lots of hours in. In terms of background, uh, most mm-hmm. of us have been fighter pilots. Fighter airplanes don't have a lot of room. 
Exactly. And uh, so the, to me, it was not any, anywhere near a claustrophobic situation mm-hmm. as you described. Yes, sir. Uh, but again, in, in testing on the ground, uh, uh, both at the factory uh, before they were delivered to Kennedy and living in them in uh, quite a few, many hours and uh, testing at Kennedy, and including the chamber test with the vehicles, uh, they were like a second home. So there was no no issue from that standpoint uh, with the 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 living environment. It was tight, obviously, and it was uh, kind of an all-in-one uh, room situation. It was your uh, uh, working area. It was your uh, uh, place. You with the optics, you had you shot stars. Uh, it was your galley with uh, the cupboards with uh, cabinets you could open for food and a water gun, hot and, hot and cold water guns to uh, mix up your food and also your bathroom all in one little room. Totally uh, amazing little... technology, right. Totally amazing, yeah. Fred, how they designed this. But thank goodness for Lunar Module Aquarius as you and the rest of the crew are handling the emergency on board Command Module Odyssey. But this is, I've never heard this from anyone, and I want to hear it from you. I spent a little time with Jim Lovell on this, but we never had enough time to ask the procedural thing. So from that incident, what and how quickly was the decision made, obviously, to do what you could to get back? I mean, was there the possibility that you could have just simply turned the whole spacecraft around toward and headed to Earth? Or it's not that simple, because you need the moon to what? Swing around. Tell us, tell us what did happen and how you swung around the moon. Well, we we obviously were not involved with uh, that particular decision you mentioned, where you could do what was called a direct return, yes, uh, which would involve practically using all the fuel out of the uh, the service module, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, having it maybe jettison it even. But I think the ground, the people on the ground uh, had a set of uh, call it technical arguments about it and decided uh, they didn't really know the status of the service module, its health, mm-hmm. and uh, decided that the and safest way was to just con- continue the path and and modify the path to uh, to go around the moon to buy time. If, to con- and that's what happened during this mission. It was a sort of a sequence of uh, plateaus of uh, remaining still a little ahead of the game until you figured out the next thing. And uh, right. so the first thing that they agreed on, and, uh, and I call it Plan B now, yes, sir. Uh, the new flight plan, was to get us on that path back back around the moon to head home. And that was the first maneuver we did using the landing engine on the limb, the one we would have landed with uh, to affect that uh, trajectory change. That's incredible. I mean, more and more I hear this, ladies and gentlemen, the, of course, lunar module Aquarius is so dependent, I mean, so important to get these three astronauts back. And again, we're speaking with uh, Fred Hayes, one of the members on board Apollo 13. He was the lunar module pilot on that historic mission. He and Jim Lovell and John Swigert, of course, made up the rest of the crew. So from this particular factoid, and this is fascinating because I study astronomy mostly, sir, your flight past the far side of the moon at at the highest elevation, I guess, so making what you and your crew the farthest humans ever to venture so far away from Earth right now in history. So that's an amazing feat right there. Why did you have to go so far from the moon to get extra speed? Is that the simple answer? Well, I think that record, which I'd, I'd have traded that the record for landing on the moon, but uh, mm-hmm. at any rate, the. Uh, it's the happenstance was we went around the moon at about 
130, uh, 31 miles, something like that. Yes. And uh, the, the lunar uh, trajectory around the moon is not circular. It's somewhat elliptical. Mm-hmm. And the timing was uh, we went around the moon as it was kind of at one of its furthest points away from the Earth in that path it takes. Mm-hmm. So that couple with our altitude gave us that uh, uh, point of being the furthest away from Earth at that particular time. That's amazing. That's incredible, Fred. And until people go back to the moon, that's a great historic record. But more important, the safety of the crew, the great ground controllers and people in uh, NASA for the, you know, handling this mission, obviously uh, real geniuses to make sure that the spacecraft gets you and your other two crew members back. So once you make that burn around the moon, describe the ingress toward the Earth, because I've never heard any astronaut explain this as you're now coming back on the far side of the moon, you have the lunar module with you in front. You have, of course, the command module damaged the Apollo capsule. What's the next procedure, and how then do you actually pinpoint a location on the Earth in this rather unusual setting where you've got a lunar module as a lifeboat? It seems so complicated. It's like skipping a rock on the water. You don't want it to go off and skip off into space. So tell us. This is fascinating to hear the rest. Well, again, again, as I said, it was a series of things that were worked in this new plan B that kept us ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one uh, was after we passed the moon by two hours, the longest maneuver we did using the, the LEM decent engine, mm-hmm. cut 10 hours off the return, and that was critical from the standpoint of saving uh, time and mm-hmm. uh, making us a better shape on our consumables, that is uh, water and in power, et cetera. And so then further, we had to do two minor corrections to the trajectory to, as you say, fit into the uh, right angle as we approach the Earth uh, for the uh, entry. So, you know, it's just a series of three, in that case, three steps. The, mm-hmm. the bigger, biggest maneuver after we left the moon a couple hours and then two more mid-courses, they're called, on the way back to sort of fine-tune the path uh, for entry. Fred, this is interesting. I have a model of this particular spacecraft that's going to stay there forever. It's a beautiful model. You'd love it, too. It's got the lunar module attached to the command and service module with the Apollo capsule, of course, in between. So describe to the viewers out there, since radio is the theater of the mind, as you're heading toward the Earth, when did you have to get rid of the lunar module to deploy? You get rid of that to eject it. And then when did the command module actually separate from the Apollo capsule? Describe that series, because it's still, to me, amazing how all this worked with the crisis that happened on the command module. Well, the sequence, obviously, we were in a situation approaching entry that was different than anything before, Mm -hmm. as you say, with the limb still attached, and a dead service module uh, that could not we cannot use with its uh, thrusters to uh, do proper separation. So the first thing that was separated was the service module. It was dead and wasn't much use otherwise. Mm-hmm. And th- that was used uh, with control from the limb and some thrust to assure separation offset to our path. And it allowed us also, Jim, could then rotate the lunar module with attitude thrusters, and we shot a lot of pictures of the damaged area. I saw that. Uh, then, that, then not too long after that, we again, with a sort of an offset angle from the path, we actually uh, 
uh, blew off, in effect, blew off the limb. So the la- wow. that was the last thing we got rid of. Because, again, the way you normally separate the limb is you undo the latches and you use the thrusters on the service module sure. to provide translation thrust to get clearance. Well, the service module was already gone, and it was dead anyway. Yes. So the tunnel had to be pressurized between the two vehicles. And then pyrotechnically, the limb was, in essence, blown away by the excess pressure in the tunnel area. Well, thank so God. that was with the hatches, both hatches closed. Right. So that's God the way we assured separation of the limb mm-hmm. uh, to be a, uh, somewhat away from us off our normal entry path. That's amazing. Just a couple of quick questions, Fred. Our, our time has just about expired here, but never in terms of ever wanting to talk to you again about this. You're welcome here anytime. But just a couple of quick questions. Obviously, people, of course, around the world praying, and I say that lightly, of course, for the actual return of you, both, all three of you, of course, and Godspeed to everyone who made this happen. But it obviously happened successfully. It's amazing. So talk to us here briefly. What's the importance and significance in your mind, Fred Hayes, of the entire Apollo program? I love it, but I want to hear from somebody who really did the stuff. So talk about that for a minute. Well, the Apollo program was, to me, just a continuation of what NASA ought to be doing, which is uh, exploration. And, of course, it was it was built up to uh, that point through the earlier programs of Mercury, which kind of improved humans would survive in space, to uh, Gemini, which uh, got, a, got a head, head of the game on some of the critical elements that would be needed to do the lunar mission. And uh, so it's just call it baby steps as we're trying to move out away from our Earth, and eventually, it maybe it'll take a very long time, uh, to uh, think of having uh, humans uh, located on places other than Earth, because we're kind of single-point failure with Earth. It's, it's our spaceship, mm-hmm. and uh, we don't have a lunar module for the Earth. Uh, and as we know, things have happened on Earth that have, uh, have been major extinctions in the past, uh, several mm-hmm. In fact, if you would Google that, and uh, there's no no saying that that won't happen again. So I think, uh, but uh, just in general, the the mission of NASA is to continue uh, exploration and moving outward. Absolutely. The Apollo 13 movie, of course, directed by Ron Howard, produced by Brian Grazer. You know, sir, the uh, person, your persona, is played by actor who's passed Bill Paxton. Your quick analysis of that movie? I mean, I'm sure Tom Hanks and you have got together many times, but what's your feeling about the movie overall? Well, I, yeah, I'd say the first uh, first time I watched it, I was too hung up with, I'll call it technical errors, mm-hmm. which, which is a, a true of any, uh, we call it, real uh, trying to be real-life uh, programs that uh, Hollywood has done about space. Right. But uh, ex- excluding that... Uh, as I settled back in, I've seen it several more times. I think it held true and did an excellent job on, uh, call it the bottom line story, which is people in trouble, which we were uh, challenges that had to be faced uh, really through the uh, the expertise and training of a team, both on the ground and ourselves executing what they figured out to do. Uh, that enabled it to have a good Hollywood ending, and we got home. You know, Fred, it's an amazing story, and I want to thank you so much for joining me. When we 
go to the bottom of the hour here. Please stay on the line uh, as we go to the break here. But again, I want to thank you. And of course, a dedication, ladies and gentlemen, to the members of Apollo 13. Jim, of course, Jim Lovell's been a guest here on this radio show today. Astronaut Fred Hayes, lunar module pilot on Apollo 13. And in loving memory of Jack Swigert Jr., the other crew member, all three made this dynamic uh, group of men. Only 24 humans have gone to the moon as far as sailed to the moon or flown to the moon. And as you know better, sir, only 12 have walked on the surface. We hope to continue this conversation in the future with you. But Fred Hayes is the award-winning person here. He's gotten so many medals, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the NASA Distinguished Distinguished Service Medal, the NASA Exceptional Service Medal, National Defense Service Medal with one star and so many others. Sir, I thank you for your military service, and it's an honor to have you here on the Dr. Sky Show. I'm hoping in the future that we might carry on a future discussion in more detail on the great epic journey of us going to the moon, President Kennedy's desire to get us to the moon before, of course, that decade was out successfully doing it. Fred Hayes, thank you for your service to America, and long live the Apollo program and the memory of all the astronauts. Thank you, Fred Hayes. Stay on the line with us as we go to the bottom of the hour break. That, of course, astronaut Fred Hayes, Apollo 13 fame. Ladies and gentlemen, an amazing story about how engineers, scientists, astronauts, pilots all work together to bring three astronauts back from what might not have been a very successful outcome without the collective minds of great science and thinking outside of the box. I'm Dr. Sky, always great guests from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather. And I'm sure astronaut Fred Hayes would agree. Dr. Sky reminds everyone to always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. Thank you, Fred Hayes. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. 